Whoa. <laughs> what a passage to preach from on Father's Day. <laughs> you, you better pray for me really hard because, man, I got to tell you, like, this is one of those passages of Scripture that I would probably never choose to preach from if we weren't, you know, like systematically studying our way through a book, the, you know, the book of Jeremiah. We're, we're reading together, if you're here visiting today, over the summer months, uh, roughly a, a chapter a day or a little bit less. There's 52 chapters in Jeremiah. So we're reading together through the book of Jeremiah, studying together the message of Jeremiah and the lessons that come to us from his ministry and life. And so this week's readings were Jeremiah 5, 6, and 7. And this is the, the last part of the readings from uh, the week that's just passed. And I had to choose. You know, you read 5, 6, and 7, and it's all about the same. It's all full of doom and gloom. It's all full of, of, of representations of God's anger. What a joyful thing to preach about on Father's Day. But we're going to go there. We're going to do it. And uh, Lord willing, we're going to learn some good things from this passage, even though it's not the most pleasant passage for us to read on this day or any day. So by way of introduction this morning, let me tell you a little story about one of the greatest and most famous sermons ever given. The date was Sunday, July 8th of 1741, and the place was the little town of Enfield, Connecticut. Invited to speak there as a guest by the pastor of the church, because this little church had previously been unaffected by uh, the move of God's Spirit sweeping the nation at that time, Jonathan Edwards rose to the pulpit at the young age of 38 years old that Sunday. Yet by then, even though he was only 38 years old, Edwards had been ministering around the New England colonies for over 10 years as part of what's now become known to history as the Great Awakening. Before Edwards could finish his message that day, the response of the people was already palpable, visible, tangible. It was clearly evident that God's Spirit was on the move in their midst. How so, we might wonder? History records the event as unimaginably powerful. It wasn't Edward's style or passion that moved people. It was the Spirit of God. In fact, it was a simple but tangible combination of the truth of God's Word and the powerful presence of God's Spirit that moved people that morning. Edwards, you might know, um, was not particularly passionate as a preacher. In fact, he was known, to the contrary, to be quite dispassionate, and he would read his manuscript without a lot of emotional flair. And yet, people responded in some amazing ways. That message, as you might recall, you probably learned about it and read it back in ninth grade English. That message was called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. 
Now, the sermon over the years has received some criticism. And this is quite interesting to me as we think about this topic of God's anger. Edward's words have endured and are still read and studied to this day as a classic example of the preaching of the, that era in history, the Great Awakening. And his sermon continues to be the leading example of a Great Awakening sermon, um, still used in religious and academic studies and I think even in a lot of high school English classes. Like Edward's other published works, it combines some very vivid imagery of hell with observations of the world and numerous citations from the scriptures. By those means, Edward hoped, Edwards hoped that the imagery and the language of his sermon would awaken audiences to the horrific reality that awaited them if they were to continue without calling on Christ Jesus to be saved. The underlying point was that God has given humanity a chance to confess their sins and turn away from sin, turn toward God's grace and out from under his wrath. Edwards said that it was the mere will of God that keeps wicked men from the depths of hell. This act of restraint has given humanity a chance to mend their ways and return to Christ. Now, I I share that story with you because the notion of God as essentially angry is a hard one for for many people to connect with, and for good reason. I don't think it's uh, true, as you'll hear me explain uh, over the next few minutes, that God is essentially angry. This message and this concept of God's anger has become so controversial, in fact, that there was another book that came out just a year ago by a theologian who played off of Edward's original title, and here's what he titled his new book, Sinners in the Hands of a Loving God, as if to suggest Edward's got it wrong. Certainly, it's a more appealing title, don't you think? And so, as I struggled with what to title this message this morning and thought about these two different approaches to describing who God is and what God's like and how God relates to people, I settled on the middle ground as a good vineyard pastor. (laughs) And so, here's the title, right? In the Hands of God. We're all in the hands of God. And whether God is angry and or loving is determined by how we respond to the ministry of Jesus. So we'll come to that in due time. But let's begin with the reality of what's depicted in Jeremiah chapter 7. Because this is an inescapable reality that we have to come to terms with. So the question before us, particularly in light of the words we find in Jeremiah chapters 5 to 7, is how to understand the anger of God in proper perspective. It is a biblical reality. What does it mean? How are we to understand it? There can be little doubt that God was indeed angry with the Israelites when he sent them into exile roughly 2,600 years ago. But is it right to say that God still gets angry with people? 
Or has the new covenant brought an end to God's anger by overriding it with His love and grace? For that matter, are are anger and love contradictory and incompatible? Is anger fundamentally unloving? Or is there some compelling and righteous way that we can actually hold them together in dynamic tension? Friends, these are not light or insignificant questions to think about, are they? So I pray for the spirit of wisdom and revelation to help me clearly and rightly communicate this morning what God's word has to say to us about God's anger. And I welcome you to pray for me as well because um, in the end, I can only hope for the stamp of God's approval on what I share with you. So let's start then with the text of Jeremiah 7 and, and what it gives us in terms of a picture of God, God's nature, God's character, God's response to human sin. And there's a glimpse here of one particular element of God's immutable and holy character that we have to see and understand clearly. Here's the hard truth. Are you ready for this? The hard truth that that seems clearly and consistently communicated both here in Jeremiah 7 and in other places throughout the Word of God. The first takeaway I want you to see with me here is that God does indeed experience a righteous anger at the sin which leads people away from right relationship with him. Think about that carefully. God does indeed experience a righteous anger at the sin which leads people away from right relationship with him. He's not happy about sin. Take a look with me at two specific references in our reading this morning by way of example. We'll start with Jeremiah 7, verse 20. Therefore, Jeremiah says, and he's again just relaying here the word of the Lord delivered to him, this is what the sovereign Lord says. My anger and my wrath will be poured out on this place, on men and beast, on the trees of the field and on the crops of your land, and it will burn and not be quenched. Now pair that with another reference just a few verses later down the text, Jeremiah 7.29. The passage our reading this morning concludes with God instructing Jeremiah to cut off his hair and throw it away and take up a lament on the barren heights. And by the way, I should mention, did you know that Jeremiah is the author of Lamentations as well as Jeremiah? Why? For the Lord has rejected and abandoned this generation that is under his wrath. So in these two verses from our reading for this morning, we find two distinct and pretty unambiguous references to the anger and wrath of God. And truth be told, this is just the tip of the iceberg, just the tip of the iceberg. Thanks to modern tools like Bible Gateway that I use quite often, you can find out in a moment 
that Jeremiah references this part of God's character repeatedly throughout the book of Jeremiah. This is a common theme in Jeremiah's writing and speaking. In fact, he uses the term anger to describe God's response to people's sin 32 different times in the book of Jeremiah. And he uses the word wrath 19 different times. I think the terms are really synonymous in a way, and sometimes they're even paired together, clearly suggesting you know, that, that, that they, they have to do with the same emotion, the same response to the sinfulness of people. Now, I won't bother you with the, the Hebrew origins of those words as if that might somehow you know, ease the blow of this reality. To the contrary, what I want you to understand here is that Jeremiah didn't have any desire or intention of easing the blow. The message that God asked him to deliver was a hard message to deliver and to hear. He spoke really as forcefully as he could and as the Lord commanded him to convey the hard truth that God was indeed really and truly upset with the behavior of his people. He was upset in particular that he tried to warn them many times, again and again and again, sending prophetic voices like Jeremiah's down through the ages, and yet they still clung to their idolatry. They still clung to their sinful practices. God was upset, it seems, that they, did, they didn't and couldn't even believe Jeremiah's warnings specifically. And they refused to accept the idea that God would allow the city of Jerusalem and his very own temple to be destroyed. They couldn't imagine. How, how could God do such a thing? How could God ever allow his temple to be destroyed? So this is really the gist of the first 11 verses in Jeremiah chapter 7. And I want you to listen again with that background, with that context. Listen again to how God confronts the unwillingness of his people to hear and believe Jeremiah's prophetic warning. In fact, as you listen, picture in your imagination what these words describe. Imagine Jeremiah standing outside the gates of the temple in Jerusalem, declaring these words to the people of Jerusalem as they come to the temple to worship. In fact, if it helps you just to get in touch with the idea, not that it's all you know, directly relevant in the same way, but imagine somebody like Jeremiah standing outside the door of our church declaring something like this as you walk in on a Sunday morning. This is the word that came to Jeremiah from the Lord. Stand at the gate of the Lord's house and there proclaim this message. Hear the word of the Lord, all you people of Judah who come through these gates to worship the Lord. This is what the Lord Almighty, the God of Israel, says. Reform your ways and your actions and I will let you live in this place. Do not trust in deceptive words and say, this is the temple of the Lord. This is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord. 
if you really change your ways and your actions and deal with each other justly, if you do not oppress the foreigner, the fatherless, or the widow, and do not shed innocent blood in this place, and if you do not follow the other gods to your own harm, then I will let you live in this place, in the land that I gave your ancestors forever and ever. But look, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. Now here I should just pause and explain. Do you know what those words were? They were the words of false prophets who rose up to oppose the ministry of Jeremiah. And what they were saying to the people is, oh, God is so loving, he would never destroy Jerusalem. God is so loving, he would never destroy his own temple. He would never allow us to be taken captive by the Babylonians. God's not capable of such a thing. The word of the Lord is, rest easy, be at peace. It's all going to be okay. And the Lord says to Jeremiah, you tell them this, you are trusting in deceptive words that are worthless. So do you see and hear in these words the frustration of God, the anger of God? Do you perceive the righteous anger directed toward his people's sheer hypocrisy. They come to the temple to worship him, but their lives are anything but worshipful. This is the temple, they repeat again and again, as if to say, God would never destroy his own house, would he? And yet, that's precisely what Jeremiah prophesied was sure to happen, and it did right? As we read this, we have to remember the historic context and the fulfillment of these words. These words were given and spoken before it all happened. And it did happen, just as Jeremiah prophesied. The year was 587 BC when the Babylonians, under the leadership of King Nebuchadnezzar, attacked Jerusalem for the third time, laid siege to the city, finally broke through the gates, destroyed the city, carried off all of its inhabitants in exile and tore the temple down. It happened. So the verdict is that according to Scripture, God can indeed become angry with people and especially with their sinful and idolatrous proclivities, right? The things that we are prone to give ourselves to that dishonor the Lord. But having said all that, here we have to transition for a moment to a second point of emphasis here, which is a really important one regarding the nature of God's anger. What I want you to understand with me comes to this. God's anger is, believe it or not, holy, righteous, and just both in its cause and in its expression. So at this point, I have to actually digress for a moment from Jeremiah 
and bring alongside of Jeremiah some other references that are helpful and that, that um, give us some context, some biblical context to understand the nature of God's anger. For example, let me draw your attention to Exodus 34. Exodus 34, this is an, an absolutely pivotal passage. Moses goes up Mount Sinai for the second time. You'll recall the story that he came down the first time with the tablets of the Ten Commandments and found the people of Israel, the, the, the Israelites, worshiping a golden calf, participating in sheer idolatry. And he was so, Moses was so angry that he destroyed the Ten Commandments that he'd just come down the mountain with. So then God called him again up the mountain a second time, and he went back up the mountain, and here's what we're told happened between God and Moses the second time he went up the mountain. Exodus 34, 5 to 7, the Lord came down in the cloud and stood there with Moses and proclaimed his name, the Lord. And he passed in front of Moses, proclaiming. Now just imagine somehow, imagine this happening. Imagine Moses encountering the presence of the Lord and hearing the voice of the Lord declare these words about himself. The Lord, the Lord, the compassionate and gracious God, slow to anger, abounding in love and faithfulness, maintaining love to thousands, and forgiving wickedness, rebellion, and sin. Yet, he does not leave the guilty unpunished. He punishes the children and their children for the sin of the parents to the third and fourth generation. See, this is God's declaration to Moses about his character, about his nature, and specifically about the nature of his anger towards sin. And what does he say? God says of himself, I can get angry, but I'm slow to anger and abounding in love. Isn't that good news? Isn't that helpful perspective here as we think about the anger of God? Matter of fact, that refrain gets picked up and repeated multiple times throughout the Old Testament. These words to Moses were so important that other authors picked up on them and repeated them again and again and again and again. An example, Psalm 103, David declares this same thing. Where did he get it? The stories were told down through the generations of what the Lord had said to Moses. So David says in Psalm 103, 8 to 13, the Lord is compassionate and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in love. He will not always accuse, nor will he harbor his anger forever. He does not treat us as our sins deserve or repay us according to our iniquities. For as high as the heavens are above the earth, so great is his love for those who fear him. As far as the east is from the west, so far has he removed our transgressions from us. As a father has compassion on his children, so the Lord has compassion on those who fear him. So do you see the point of emphasis here? God is slow to anger. And therefore, we can rest assured the deeper implication is is this. When his anger does get aroused, 
It's well-deserved. It's well-deserved. He's not quick to get angry. He's not reluctant to forgive. And yet, sadly, isn't that how many people think of him? You see, there are two false assumptions that people make about God's anger that we have to rise above in our thinking. And they're sort of equal but opposite dangers. You can fall off the horse on either side. First, many people assume that God is essentially and consistently angry with them and disappointed in their shortcomings. People have this mindset. They think of God as an angry old man up in the sky wagging his finger at them as if that's all there is to his character. Maybe you grew up in a home with a father like that and you're projecting onto God what you experienced in your own family. But then, secondarily, on the opposite side, falling out of balance in the opposite direction, people might also assume that all anger is negative and bad and therefore God is incapable of such a thing. Any expression of anger is unbecoming of God. This is the plight, if I can put it that way, of the universalists, right? Who want to believe that it's simply not in God's nature to condemn anyone for anything. How could God be loving and angry? It's not possible. They believe that any expression of anger from God would be fundamentally unholy and unloving. So here we have to bear in mind the simple fact that there is an important difference between righteous anger and unrighteous anger. Not all anger is equally good or bad. There's a difference both in what causes them and in how they get expressed. And this is vitally important to understand because if we assume that all anger is the same, then we run into major problems with the anger of God. If anger is all bad, then how could a good God, a good, good father, ever get angry with his children? But on the flip side, if all anger is good, then we're left having to uh, accept expressions of anger from one person to another, for example, that are obviously toxic to healthy relationships, controlling, manipulative, abusive, and deeply hurtful. This is the way that many people relate to one another and they pay the price for it with broken relationships. So to get around this quandary, we have to be able to discern and distinguish righteous anger from unrighteous anger. For example, I think of a powerful movie that I saw recently called I Can Only Imagine. Anybody else see this? Amazing movie. In fact, I think it's out on DVD now, and if you haven't seen it yet, I highly recommend it. It's the backstory of the life experiences that inspired the writing of a chart-topping Christian artist named Bart Millard, who's the lead singer of the band Mercy Me. And if you saw the movie or you know anything of Bart's story, you'll recall that he grew up in a home with an abusive father. And as a result, his mother moved out when he was just a young preteen boy 
and he was left with great anger toward his father for the negative impact that he'd had on Bart's family life. Let me encourage you to just take a look for a moment at one of the previews for this movie that kind of captures the essence of the story in a nutshell. Are we ready? It's an amazing song. Just kind of happened. Took about 10 minutes, I guess. Bart, you didn't write this song in 10 minutes. Took a lifetime. How'd you do this? You know, I've never told anybody my story. When I was uh, 11 years old, life was tough. Where's Mama? She's gone. She don't want me no more. And she don't want you neither. And I've always loved music. And I found some songs that I just, I held on to. They gave me hope. Mercy me, that can't be his real voice. Because I needed it. Dad, I can do this. No, you can't. And you're going to blink your eyes and you're going to realize that life has gotten you nowhere because you chased some stupid dream. I can only I'm leaving. Shan. I want you to know that I pray for you all the time. And I hope that you find whatever it is that you're looking for out there. What are you running from? My dad. Then write about it. Let that pain become your inspiration. I have some stuff I need to sort out. And I deal with it the only way I know how. And that's to write a song. You hungry? Uh, set the table. What is this? I want to make things right. <laughs> you and me. My dad was a monster, and I saw God transform him. You have a gift, real gift. I didn't think that God could do that. And so I wrote this song for my dad. That can come from anger. This is an emotion that can wreak havoc in our most important relationships if it's not experienced and expressed in holy and righteous ways. So Bart's father, as the movie portrays, acted with unrighteous anger that was destructive on his family. But Bart's reaction to that was what I would call a measure of righteous anger, indignation, that he had to suffer this at the hands of his father. And in the end, what brings them both back together in relationship is the forgiveness and hope that Bart finds in and through his relationship with Jesus. By receiving God's grace, Bart is then able to extend that grace to his own father and see their broken relationship reconciled. In fact, he's able to see his father apologize for all the years of abusive behavior and actually come to faith himself. So I share this with you because it's a picture. It's a picture 
of how destructive anger can be when it's unrighteous, but at the same time, how the love and grace of God is able to overcome the power of anger and the difference between righteous and unrighteous anger is found in whether its cause and its expression is just or unjust. Let me help you just flesh this out momentarily here. If you're a parent, imagine with me your kids playing out in the front yard. And there's a street at the end of the yard where cars pass by. Imagine your kids playing down near the street somewhere and a car peels out and drives down the street at excessive speed. Would you find yourself in that moment feeling angry toward the driver if you witnessed this? Most of us would, I presume, right? If we care for our kids and we don't want them to be harmed, we would react momentarily, immediately, with with an anger toward the driver of that vehicle. Under these circumstances, I, I, su- I suspect that most of us um, would, would feel anger rise up in our souls very quickly and very spontaneously, and it would find some kind of expression in the moment, some kind of expression of disgust with the driver of that car. So is, is that kind of anger just and justifiable? Well, I think it is, right? If you stop and think about it, that feeling of anger in that moment is actually motivated by your love for your children. So you're angry at something that's threatening their safety, their well-being. But then the next question is this. Even if your anger is motivated by a righteous cause, how do you express it? What do you do with it? It might be caused by a righteous concern, but it can still be expressed in an unrighteous way. So in reaction to that experience, if you raise a certain finger on your hand and raise your voice to mutter the appropriate matching phrase, or inappropriate, I should say, would that be a righteous response? No. Or better yet, or worse yet, What if you determine, well, I'm just going to throw some nails out in the road to pay that sucker back? (laughs) That might suggest you probably need some anger management training. Minus Jack Nicholson, of course. So, if you get angry simply because someone drives by your house at the speed limit... What does that mean? That means you probably have a problem with anger. Right? You're probably provoked to anger far too quickly. What I'm trying to explain to you with this illustration is that both the cause of anger and the expression of anger can be just or unjust. So there's a a mix of factors that play here in our own human experience that help to determine whether our experience of anger and our expression of anger is righteous or unrighteous, holy or unholy. But here's the key, right? With God, anger is never unholy because by his very nature, he's incapable of being unholy. If God's anger were in fact unholy, he wouldn't deserve to be worshipped. 
So the root cause of someone's anger might be just, but the feeling and expression of it could be unjust. In God's case, it's never that way. Both the cause of it is just and the expression of it is just. Anger can be just or unjust, both in its cause and in its its expression. But when it comes to the Lord and his essential nature, his essential character, we cannot say, we cannot believe that God would experience and express anger in a way that's unholy, unrighteous, or unjust. God does not have an anger problem. Psalm 103, I think, said it well, right? Slow to anger, but abounding in love. And that brings us then, last but not least, to one last insight I want to put before you because, honestly, this is the trouble with Jeremiah 7. It's not the end of the story. It's just one part of the story. And so you can't extrapolate out from a chapter like this a complete understanding of God's nature and character without looking at the rest of the story. Because the story at this point in Jeremiah 7 is still in development. It's still ongoing, right? The best is yet to come. So Jeremiah 7 captures a snapshot, a glimpse of a part, one dimension of God's character, but it's not the whole. We have to remember that as we think about the anger of God. Friends, God's righteous anger and judgment are not the final word, but only one dimension in the storyline of how God responds to human sin. So as I think back to what Jonathan Edwards was aiming to accomplish and then consider the modern reaction to Edwards' language, I think, honestly, we have to say they're both right. There's some truth in each perspective. Is the God whose hands we find ourselves in angry or loving? Yes. Both. This is a classic both-and statement, not a false dichotomy of either-or. Frankly, the answer doesn't depend on God's mood. It depends on the person in question and whether their just judgment and sentence has been commuted in Christ. That's the rest of the story here. The whole truth, the rest of the story, as Paul Harvey might say it, is that God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, Jesus Christ our Lord, that whoever believes in him shall not perish. You know what that means? Shall not be subject to God's anger, but instead have eternal life. So we've been invited into a new kind of covenant relationship with God, not based on whether we follow the law, but based on whether we trust in the grace of God offered through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ. That's the essence of the gospel. That's the essence of the good news that we have received and that we have to share. This is the 
the essence of the biblical message, the storyline that continues on after Jeremiah 7. In fact, that chapter really isn't even the end of the story in Jeremiah. What you're going to see over the weeks to come is that even Jeremiah isn't all about anger and wrath. There are promises of the new covenant yet to come. There are glimpses of the hope of Jesus on the horizon. So in one sense, reading this single chapter and trying to use it to describe the fullness of God's character, is, it's a bit like the classic picture of a blindfolded man touching one part of an elephant and then declaring that he knows and understands what elephants are like. It doesn't work that way. It doesn't add up. And yet, some people, maybe even some of us here this morning, feel absolutely convinced that God is angry with us. So here, let me bring this home to a really specific point of application. Can I just tell you, from the bottom of my heart, that the truth of God's word on this point is very clear. If you are in Christ, you are not subject to God's anger. Now, he can be disappointed with your behavior. There can be elements of who you are and what you do that he's not entirely happy with or satisfied with and that he wants to see changed. But the point is, in the big picture scheme of things, if you're in Christ, the anger of the Lord has been poured out upon Christ Jesus for your benefit. And what that means is that you have come into a place of favor. Now, you can still be subject to discipline as a child of God, but you're favored. You're beloved. You're you're taken up in the arms of God. You're identified as a child of the Heavenly Father. In fact, I think it's really fair to say that in one sense, what happened to the people of Judah In 587 B.C., when Jerusalem was destroyed and the temple was destroyed, what happened was a type and a foreshadow of what will happen again to all who reject the offer of God's love and grace embodied in Jesus Christ. God's anger is still a part of who he is. And there is a judgment to be reckoned with for those outside of faith in Christ. In the end, destruction awaits all who stand guilty before the throne of God. And in that sense, I think Jonathan Edwards was right to scare the hell out of people. He was perfectly within the bounds of truth to warn people, much like Nehemiah did, that, or Jeremiah did, I'm sorry, that judgment was headed their way. That's the heart of Jonathan Edwards. He wanted to warn people so that they could turn and receive God's grace. His purpose was to help people avoid God's anger and judgment by accepting his love and grace instead, right? He wanted them to squarely face the reality of God's anger to help motivate them toward repentance so that they could avoid it. So friends, If there is any sense in which the anger of God is still aroused 
toward us as his children. Let me help you to put it in perspective with these words, and I'll close with this from Hebrews chapter 12. Because I think this is the paradigm that we have to understand the heart and character of God through. And it's the perfect paradigm for us to end with on this particular day. Hebrews 12, 5 to 11. Have you completely forgotten this word of encouragement that addresses you as a father addresses his son? It says, My son, do not make light of the Lord's discipline and do not lose heart when he rebukes you because the Lord disciplines the one he loves and he chastens everyone he accepts as his son or daughter. Endure hardship as discipline, for God is treating you as his children. What children are not disciplined by their father? If you're not disciplined, and everyone undergoes discipline, then you're not legitimate, not true sons and daughters at all. Moreover, we've all had human fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them for it. How much more should we submit to the Father of spirits and live? They disciplined us for a little while as they thought best, but God disciplines us for our good in order that we may share in his holiness. No discipline seems pleasant at the time, but painful. Later on, however, it produces a harvest of righteousness and peace for those who have been trained by it. What does all this add up to? When we think that God is angry with us because we're experiencing the hardship that results from sin, we might be under discipline. Probably are under discipline. But the heart of God is still for us, not against us. The favor of God is still with us if we're in Christ. We may at times think or feel that we're in the hands of an angry God. But in reality, if you'd put that last slide up, Carson, these are the hands of God that we find ourselves in. The hands of Jesus Christ who died on the cross and then rose from the dead to overcome the power of sin and death. Friends, there's no better place to be than in those hands. Let's pray.